0: Welcome to JourneyWithJesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Rhetoric of Excess in the Parable of the Workers. It's based upon the lectionary reading for Sunday, September 21st, 2014. There's a small market near my house where I like to shop called the Milk Pail. It's a funky place with a loyal following, a down-and-dirty contrast to the upscale Whole Foods experience. A regular fixture at this grocery is a disheveled man who sits in his wheelchair at the entrance to the store. His puffy face is bright red, his legs are badly swollen. As soon as I get out of my car, I can see this man, so there's plenty of time for the voices inside my head to debate whether to give him any money. Won't he spend it on alcohol? How will my single dollar help? Am I going to have to do this every time I shop here? Sometimes I give the man a dollar. Every once in a while, five dollars. But the last time I was at the milk pail, my smallest bill was a twenty. Should I give him twenty dollars? Isn't that excessive? Part of my problem was that during Lent last year, I read through the four Gospels. And one of the things I noticed was the exaggerated language that's repeatedly used to describe the generosity of God, life in God's kingdom in our human response to God's generosity. The British literary critic Frank Kermode called this phenomenon a rhetoric of excess. Matthew, in particular, has what he calls a quite unusual intensity of rhetorical excess. For example, we read about a log in your eye, a camel going through the eye of a needle, in straining a gnat while swallowing a camel. Our righteousness must be produced in excess, observes Kermode. It must exceed that of the Pharisees. We must love not only our neighbors, but also our enemies. We should give in secret, so that our left hand doesn't know what our right hand is doing, that is, hidden even from our own selves. Wise people leave their dead unburied. Foolish people build houses on sand and walk through wide gates. Kermode suggests an awkward but literal translation of the original Greek in Matthew 5:47. If ye greet only your brethren, what excess do ye? And so Kermode writes... Excess is constantly demanded. Everything must be in excess. Another example of excess that Kermo gives is the gospel for this week about the workers in the vineyard. It's a story about a business owner with outrageous ideas about a fair wage. The punchline of the story shocked the listeners with a radical reversal that subverted conventional wisdom. And to make his point clear, Jesus repeats the punchline verbatim three times, which is In God's kingdom, the first will be last, and the last will be first. The parable of the workers is preceded by a story about a rich man. When Jesus invited the man to sell his possessions and give his money to the poor, The gospel says, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Peter then responded, Lord, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? The rich man kept all that he had. The disciples left all that they had. And so Jesus reassured them, at the renewal of all things, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Jesus follows this with a story about a foreman who hired some laborers early in the morning, then additional workers at the third, sixth, ninth, and eleventh hours. That evening he paid the workers, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first Whereas the first workers hired had endured the burden of the work in the heat of the day for 12 hours, the last workers hired at the 11th hour worked just one hour. In fact, the story says they had stood there all day long doing nothing. Nonetheless, the people hired last received 12 hours of pay for one hour of work. The laborers who had worked 12 hours grumbled against the landowner. Well, of course they grumbled. It wasn't fair, not by a long shot. But the excessive generosity of God is different than getting what you earned. And so for the third time, Jesus says, the last will be first, and the first will be last. Jesus concludes with a sharp question to those who grumbled about God's excess. Are you envious because I am generous? The alternate reading from the book of Jonah this week makes the exact same point. When God had compassion on the pagan Ninevites, Jonah complained bitterly in words that echo the grumblers in Jesus' parable. Jonah says, I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. When Jonah finally preached to Israel's pagan conquerors, the unthinkable happened. The city famed for cruelty and wickedness believed the message and repented the king proclaimed a national day of civic repentance. Jonah found it hard to believe that Nineveh was, as the book says, a city important to God. It was a city for which God had great compassion. And just as Jesus asked the grumblers a question, so God asked Jonah a question in the very last sentence in the book. Should I not be concerned about that great city? The rhetoric of excess isn't limited to Matthew, which was Frank Kermode's focus. When you begin to look, it's everywhere. The Gospel for last week is another example. Jesus told us to forgive a person 490 times. Seventy times seven. Divine forgiveness, given and received, is beyond calculation or comprehension. Forgiveness on that scale is wildly disproportionate to the sincerity of the penitent or the seriousness of their offense. Some disciples quit their jobs Others left their families, like the rich women who itinerated with Jesus and supported him. One woman anointed Jesus with a bottle of perfume worth $50,000 in today's wages. Luke compares God to a shepherd who abandons a flock of 99 sheep in order to find one lost sheep. In the parable of the prodigal son, he's like an indulgent father who welcomes back his indigent son with the best party that money could buy, despite, once again, the anger of the older son at such excessive generosity. Jesus compares God's kingdom to a wedding party with an outrageous excess of fine wine. He says that the whole world couldn't contain enough books to describe the deeds of Jesus. In the Book of Acts, some people sold property and distributed the proceeds to the Jesus movement. So, yes, I gave the man at the milk pail my twenty dollar bill. It was honest it was an honest effort to imitate the excessive generos- generosity of God by doing something that defied common sense or conventional wisdom. Of course, the irony is that, compared to the gospel's rhetoric of excess, my little twenty dollars was at best a pale imitation of the generosity of God. You could even say that it was more parsimonious than profligate. I gave out of the surplus of my wealth, And I seem to recall a widow described by Jesus, who despite her extreme poverty, gave everything she had to live on. For books this week, I review a title called The Corpse Washer. The author is Sinan Antoun. It's translated from the Arabic by the author himself, New Haven, Yale, 2013, 185 pages. Jawad Kazim, the protagonist and narrator in Sinan Antun's second novel, is a fourth-generation corpse washer and shrouder from a poor Shiite family in Baghdad. It's not the life he wanted to live. In fact, he worked hard to avoid it, much to the disappointment of his father, who never understood Jawad's decision to study sculpture at the Academy of Fine Arts. But as a starving artist, he needed the money, and so he hoped to do his father's work only for a short time. As a little boy, Jawad helped his father Back then, the days could be long and boring, enlivened only by his father's transistor radio. But by the time that Jawad took over, times had changed. Intune sets the novel in the long and dark shadow of Iraq's war with Iran, followed by the 1991 Gulf War, which was then followed by the 2003 American Invasion. Dictatorships and embargoes were bad enough, but this is the stuff of nightmares for Jawad, which bad dreams are sprinkled throughout the novel. Reality is even worse. He tenderly washes and wraps the corpses of the abandoned, the unidentified, and the unclaimed. Bodies that are mutilated, decapitated, and burned plucked from garbage dumps and fished out of the river. He says, I cannot wake up from this endless nightmare of wakefulness. Antoon's novel is more moral than political. It's a disturbing reminder from a unique perspective of the chaos, the carnage, and the sectarian violence unleashed by the American invasion. Jawad himself is irreligious, but his vocation forces him to explore the most deeply human and therefore religious questions. That's difficult when you feel like a stranger who was alienated in your own country. The author Sinan Antun was born and raised in Baghdad. He left the nineteen he left after the nineteen ninety one Gulf War and today is an associate professor at the Gallatin School of New York University. A novel from Iraq, The Corpse Washer. For movies this week, I review a film called Third Person, 2014. The Canadian director, Paul Haggis, won back-to-back Oscars for Best Picture with Million Dollar Baby in 2004, and then in 2005, Crash. But no amount of star power has been able to save this film from withering reviews by people who expect to like his work. The story revolves around three relationships in three cities. If anything unites the three stories, it's that all three illustrate our deep need for love and the badly broken ways that we pursue love. In Paris, Michael is a famous novelist trying to rediscover rediscover his magic touch with the commiseration of a young lover named Anna. In Rome, Scott is a so-called clothing spy who befriends the Romanian Monica in order to save her kidnapped child. And then in New York, Julia tries to regain visitation rights to her son from her angry ex, Rick, a famous painter. In each of the three relationships, children suffer significant collateral damage. I found it hard to empathize with the characters, or even find them very interesting. Still, there are very powerful themes here of love, trust, guilt, and forgiveness. From the director, Paul Haggis, third person. And finally, this week, for poetry, we've posted a favorite poem of mine by William Stafford. Stafford lived from 1914 to 1993. He was a poet and pacifist, and appointed Poet Laureate of the United States. Interestingly, he kept a daily journal for 50 years, and composed, it's hard to believe, nearly 22,000 poems, about 3,000 of which were published. This poem is called, The Way It Is. There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change. But it doesn't change. People wonder about what you are pursuing. You have to explain about the thread. But it is hard for others to see. While you hold it, you cannot get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you do can stop times unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread. The Way It Is by William Stafford Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September 21st, 2014. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.